John chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And when they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? That's the prophet like unto Moses. And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Again, the motivation for John in writing this gospel, in addition to being inspired by the Holy Spirit and by God himself to write these words, his goal here is to demonstrate to us who Jesus really is. He wants us to know our Lord and Savior. He wants us to know Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. He wants us to know Jesus Christ, God in flesh, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who lived the life that we lived who was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, who went to the cross and took upon himself the wrath of God for our sins so that we could be shielded from, from God's wrath through him, who died and rose again, conquering death and bringing us eternal life. He wants us to know where our hope is. He wants us to know who we believe on. He wants us to know why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do? Why am I here? Why did I come to Brownwood, Texas? Uh, when I interviewed for my first job in Brownwood, I was interviewing with a local radio station, and the owner of the radio station could not believe that I, I wasn't coming to Brownwood because I was starting out. I had experience. Why are you coming to Brownwood? This is career suicide. You don't make the big time in radio by taking a job at a station in Brownwood, Texas. And I said, I'm not coming here to do radio. I'm coming here to preach the gospel. Your station is how I'm paying my light bill. Why do we do that? Why, why does Brother Warren travel the country preaching the gospel through song and ministering in churches such as ours when there is probably more music to be made musically by finding venues to perform in for the general public? Um, I mean, you could do like this whole bluegrass show and incorporate the saw and get a sit-down gig in Branson, I'm sure. Um, why travel the country like that? It's, it's not because that we're out for adventure. It's not because that we're trying to make money. It is because we have been called by God to preach this gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And when you have been touched by the gospel, it changes everything for you. It changes your motivation. It changes your values. And John wants us to understand who it is that we worship, who it is that we trust, who it is that we believe. And in doing that, we'll experience that transformation. In opening the book of John, John declares that Jesus is, in fact, God. More than just a divine figure, he's God himself. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. More than just a divine figure, he is the God who created the world. He is the God who gave us life. And this is a big claim to make. This is a big claim to make. This is provocative. This is going to be a big confrontation to the Pharisees. It's going to be a big confrontation to the rabbis. It's going to be a big confrontation to the Greeks. And so John has to make his case. And so that's the case he's making in our passage. He pulls from the Old Testament to identify John the Baptist and shows how Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. This Jesus that we worship was not just a theological concept that came up 2,000 years ago. No, no one man invented our religion. Somebody did not invent this. Jesus was the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy that were written down on paper in the Old Testament. He is going to take the Old Testament, he's going to identify John the Baptist, and then he's going to use the testimony of John the Baptist to tell us that Jesus is in fact the Christ, and then he's going to make another claim beyond that. So we know who Jesus is, we know who our Lord is, because he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. In verse 23, John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. When John the Baptist said, I'm the one, I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness, these are words that perk up the ears of anybody who had studied scripture in that day and time because that was one of the prophecies they were looking for for the coming of Messiah. It'd be the same as me saying the dead in Christ shall rise first. If I say the dead in Christ are rising first, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm referring to. I'm referring to, of course, the rapture when we're reunited with the Lord in the air. We shall not all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You, you, you understand that you, these scriptures, these sayings, they, 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 they bring to life where you're at and what you believe. And John the Baptist saying, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. He is making a reference to an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah gave us the prophecy that there would be a forerunner to Christ. There would be one who would come forward to prepare the people to meet the Lord, to meet the Messiah. And John is saying, I am that man. John would be the one sent by God to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And that statement alerted everyone to the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, was soon to be revealed and was soon to arrive and to step forward and to conduct his ministry as the Old Testament had prophesied. This was the tangible fulfillment of prophecy that everyone was looking forward to. You look in the book of Matthew chapter 24, you see a lot of that prophecy being fulfilled before us today. You read the book of Revelation, you read what the Revelation talks about with the uh, with the price of goods, the, the, the price of meals, the inflation that's happening. See that you hurt not the, the, the oil or the wine and, and, and things like that. They hurt not the oil. I mean, you think about diesel prices. I think uh, the scripture was probably referring more to olive oil. But, you know, I mean, we've got to be true to the scriptures. But every time you stick that pump and that 
truck, tell me you don't think about, see that thou hurt not the oil, right? I mean, you know, we know that difficult times are coming because the Bible prophesied those difficult times leading up to the return of Christ. And we see the wars and the rumors of wars, the pestilences, the, the, the COVIDs and the monkeypoxes and everything else they try to scare us to death with. This is going to become more normal. This is going to become more normal. And these are signs that Christ is coming. And the fact that you got John the Baptist there preaching his ministry and preparing people for the coming of the Lord, that tells us, that told them that Christ was imminent, that he was almost there. And in proving that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, John, the apostle, points out the fulfillment of prophecy through John the Baptist. Scripture was written. Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible from cover to cover was written to remove all doubt. To remove all doubt as to who Jesus is and how we will be reunited with the Father in heaven. Scripture was written to line it out, to explain it, and to remove all doubt. The Old Testament demonstrated our sin through the law, then showed us our need for the Savior Jesus Christ. The Old Testament then gave us the prophecy so that we would know how to identify Christ. The New Testament demonstrates the fulfillment of those prophecies through Jesus Christ. These prophecies fulfilled through Jesus Christ prove that he is the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, through whom we obtain salvation through repentance and faith. We know Jesus is the Christ because John the Baptist identified him. In verses 29 through 30, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist spent his entire ministry foretelling the coming of the Christ. And in these verses, he says, that's him. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. We know Jesus is the Christ because the man who was sent to prepare us to meet him, who was sent to identify him, pointed him out and called names. That is the Christ, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the only begotten Son of God. It is he who you must follow. John the Baptist would tell his disciples, you must follow him and not me. He told, he told the people in John chapter 3 that I must decrease, but he must increase. Everybody needs to quit following John the Baptist. Need to start following Jesus now. Verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Messiah. The Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This identification of Jesus is very specific and very deliberate. John the Baptist wanted to make sure that everyone knew that that man walking right there was the Messiah, was the Christ. And that's how we can know that he was the Messiah. That's how we can know that he is the Christ. The Apostle John, you sit here, the Apostle John, John the Baptist, the Apostle John is telling us exactly who Christ is by proving him through the Old Testament, through the ministry of John the Baptist. He is the promised one. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. He's our Messiah. He's, our, he's the son of God. He's God in flesh. And he is the one who would redeem us and bring in everlasting life. That's who, that's who our hope is through. From the testimony of John the Baptist, we learn the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
I always, when I was a kid, I thought that was a weird verse. The Lamb of God. I mean, we had little pictures of little lambs on the walls in our Sunday school room. Little docile looking creatures. The Lamb of God. But if you're living in Jesus' day, there was a very pointed meaning to that. Because every year you went to the, te to the temple and you would sacrifice a lamb to atone for your sin for another year. And this was a process. You waited in line. You finally got to go through the, 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 the door. You tied that lamb to the horn of the altar. The horn of the altar represents the judgment of God. You tied the lamb to the horn of the altar. You would then slice the throat of the lamb, spilling the lamb's blood. The blood was taken. It was sprinkled on the horn of the altar. The blood of the lamb covers the judgment of God. The blood was taken. It was collected. The lamb was placed upon the altar. The altar, the best way I can explain that to you, is a giant barbecue grill. And there, depending on the, the type of sacrifice or the way the sacrifice was going, eating of the meat of the lamb was part of the worship process. It, rep, it represented a restoration of fellowship. That's how we get to equating fellowship with food. It, re, it, it, it demonstrated the restoration of fellowship between the worshiper and God. The blood was taken and on the Day of Atonement was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Y'all ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raiders of the Lost Ark? Not Lost Ark, that's a different thing. Raiders of the Lost Ark. When Indiana Jones goes back there and he finds that golden box with those angel wings on it, how pretty, it wouldn't have looked like that. Not after centuries of Days of Atonement. That thing was polished in that movie. The blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, represented the covering of man's sin for another year. This was all symbolic to teach us who Jesus was going to be and what Jesus was going to do. And that's what John the Baptist is speaking into. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God gave, the Lamb that God sacrificed to take away the sin of the world, not just for a year, but for all times. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. Everybody say propitiation. Propitiation. Who wants to tell me what propitiation means? All right, John. A payment for sin. I'm just trying to make sure my kids are paying attention. Thank you all for going down that road with me. Um, he is, Jesus Christ is the payment for our sin that God paid so that our sin debt could be cleared and we could walk free. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, taking God's wrath upon himself. Think about that. He took God's wrath upon himself. He shielded us from God's wrath. He took it upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. There was a day, I'm going to tell my kids, I don't preach on my kids a lot, but I'm going, to, I'm going to tell this story. There was a day we took Rachel and Josh to the doctor's office, and there's going to be a shot administered, and Josh is not happy because he does not want his sister, because when you're a kid, shots are bad. Is it Josh and John? Josh and John, right? Jessica took them to the doctor. She told me the story afterwards. Um, anyway, Josh is not happy about the fact that John's going to get a shot. Because when you're a kid, shots are bad. But when Josh found out he was getting the shot, he's good with it. He'll gladly take that shot if he spares his brother the pain. He, talk about some substitutionary work there. Jesus Christ 
took the shot for us so that we don't have to. He put himself in our place and he endured the wrath of God so the wrath of God could be satisfied and we would not have to experience that. Our hope of eternal life in heaven is in him and the work that he did on the cross and his resurrection and it is in him and him alone. So why do the Warrens travel the country four months out of the year when diesel is $5 a gallon? Why uh, do we do the things we do? Why do we make the sacrifices we make, not just me as a preacher, but you as parents and grandparents and adopted parents and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and, and everything else? Why do we do this? Because we do it for the Lord. He's our motivation. And why is he so motivating? Because he redeemed us through his work on the cross. The Apostle John, as we go through the book of John here, he's going to keep that front and center. One day, we are going to stand before God in judgment. And it doesn't matter if he pulls out every detail of our lives or not. The details of our lives are going to be insufficient. We were not righteous enough. We had sinned. Every one of us has got a disqualifier to keep us from getting into heaven. Every single one of us. But those of us who know the Lord, who trust in him, who trust that he paid for our sins on the cross, we accepted that payment through faith. And we were willing to live our lives in light of the fact that we have no righteousness on our own. But all of our righteousness comes from him, and we understand that, and we trust that. We're the ones that are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. The orphanages we build will not elicit those words from the Lord. The charity that we give, the offerings that we give, the church buildings that we build, the outreaches that we have, the vacation Bible schools that we do, that's not what's going to get us told, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant means you trusted the Lord. Amen. And you trusted him at every turn, even when those turns were pretty bad. Do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus? Do you know that he gave his life on the cross and he took God's punishment for you on behalf of you so that you would not have to? And do you trust that that is why you're going to get into heaven? If not, let today be the day that you realign your heart and you turn from your sin and your pride and your sense of self-righteousness and you turn to the Lord and you trust him that it's going to be him that welcomes you into heaven and not you marching through the gates. Let us stand.